with uh, all the sound issues. Thanks, guys, for taking care of that. Um, so, like I said, we're continuing our series uh, series in outreach. Um, it's called Walk Into the World, Walk Into Their World. And the idea is this. The idea is that uh, Christians, we have, we have news. Uh, it's good news, gospel news. That is, it's so good. We're convinced of not only its truthfulness, but the way that it blesses us in this life. We are so convinced of that that we have no choice but to share with others. So in a world where the the assumption many places is you keep your own personal faith to yourself, you know, one of the things you don't talk about, you don't talk about politics, right? You don't talk about faith. Well, as Christians, we honestly don't have that option because we're so convinced of the goodness of our news that we must share. But it's difficult, Right. If you've been in the church before, if, if you're familiar with this, outreach is one of those things like giving. Right. We, we know we're, we know we need to, but it's hard. Right. And everyone's busy. Everyone's got their own lives, their own struggles. Uh, sometimes our schedules are so hectic and chaotic that it's hard to just think, uh, do I need to be intentional about a relationship beyond what I'm already doing? That's difficult. Right. Sometimes we don't know how to do it. How do I have a conversation with someone who doesn't know Jesus? What does that look like? How, how do I have a gospel conversation with someone outside the church? Sometimes it's, it's just fear of man. It's, it's, it's fear of rejection, uh, which, I, you know, I'm a people pleaser, so it, it, it always uh, makes me nervous to feel like I'm having a conversation with someone who might not like uh, the way things are going or might think less of me. There's a lot of reasons. But uh, one of the things I want to suggest today is perhaps the reason that we're not doing outreach as God calls us to do, if that's true of you, as, as it is often true of me, I think maybe our motivation is wrong. So maybe we're not starting at the right place. I have a friend in college who was, uh, I think she was probably six, well, when the story happened, she was about 16 or 17 years old. And uh, she got a new Jeep, Cherokee. She was uh, driving it one day and she pulled it into the gas station, filled it up, Went on down the road. Down the road she went about 10 miles. And then all of a sudden the car sputtered. And they went off to the side of the road. She called the tow truck. Tow truck took it to the mechanic. Mechanic looks at the car. Calls the dad. Right? My, my friend's dad. And says, you need to ask her what she put in the tank. So dad says to, the, to her daughter, to, to his daughter, he says, well, what did you put in the tank? You know, she said, what do you mean? What did you put in? What was it, was it 80, you know, what was it, 87, 89, 93? What, what kind of gas did you put in? She says, I don't know, it was green. Uh, it was off by itself. She put in diesel, diesel fuel into a regular car. And no surprise, it didn't work very well, right? Well, I think that in a different way, I think we tend to do that sometimes in the Christian faith. We put in the wrong fuel to try to get us started, get us going down a road in different efforts. And I think with evangelism or outreach, loving those outside the church, I think we do this a lot of times. We try to put guilt into the tank and assume that it's going to get us going. And it gets us going for a little bit. But then, you know, the thing I've learned about guilt is guilt works as long as I think about it. But guilt isn't something I like to think about. So if I just distract myself... Guilt doesn't work anymore. Oh, there's a lot of things we do that. Maybe it's pride and arrogance. We, we have a tendency to maybe think we're better than someone else, and so we want to enlighten them. And that's not a good way to fill up the tank. I think today, what we're learning from the passages that we're going to study today, Matthew 22 and Matthew 28, these are the two great passages in Scripture, right? The Great Commission, for those of you who know Matthew 28, this is where Jesus charges his disciples to go out to all the nations, 
share the good news. The other great passage is the great commandment. Uh, You know, someone comes and talks to Jesus, says, Jesus, of all the commandments that are out there, which is the greatest? And he responds to them. We're going to be looking at these two passages together. And from that, we're going to try to figure out what is the good fuel? What is the right fuel to put in the tank to get us going, loving our neighbors, especially those who are outside the church? I want to suggest that I think the right fuel is love. All right, so we've got a series called Walk Into Their World, and the title of this sermon is Walk Into Their World with Love. I'd like to suggest that this is the right fuel to put in the tank. Unless we do, we're going to be sputtering in our attempts to do outreach. Three types of love we need to consider today. All right? Love is a very nebulous, vague term, so we're going to get specific. Three types of love. One, and this is the sermon, this is basically the outline. One, we need to consider God's love for us. Two, we need to consider our love for God. And three, we need to consider our love for others. Our, God's love for us, our love for God, and God's love for others. All right, I want to, uh, before we kind of keep going, if you stand with me, I'm going to read these passages. Matthew 28, um, 36 through 39. I'm sorry, Matthew 22, 36 through 39. And Matthew 28, 18 through 20. If you will follow along with me as I read out loud. Matthew 22 starts. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Jump over to Matthew 28. 18 through 20. We first read the great commandment. Now we're reading the great commission. Matthew 28, starting in verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. What we're going to do is uh, I'm going to jump around a little bit. All right, I've got some slides that hopefully will guide you, but I'm going to jump from great commission to great commandment and then back to the great commission again. So hopefully... Keep you on your toes. Hopefully uh, you'll be able to, to follow where we're going with this. Well, the first thing I want to look at is the Great Commission, chapter, uh, chapter 28. We're going to look at verse 18. All right. Now, remember the context here. What is the Great Commission? The Great Commission is, this is the end of Jesus' life. All right, so he's, he's you know, already been born, right? Celebrate Christmas. You know, that's when he, he came here. He lived a, a life 30, 33 years, uh, he was healing people, teaching about God, doing miracles. At the end of his life, he was crucified, put in a tomb. The third day, he rose again. Then he appeared to his, to his disciples. And there was a period of time between where he rose again and where he ascended into heaven. And that's the moment that we're looking at here in the Great Commission. Okay, Verse 18, Jesus says this. He says, And Jesus came to them and said to them, All authority... In heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now remember, these are Jesus' last 
words. The last thing he said, and you know, he could have said a lot of things, right? I mean, this is, these are the last things that God in flesh is going to say to get his church started, right? He could have talked about, you know, the proper way to worship and worship styles, and that would have saved a lot of conflict over the years, right? He could have articulated more clearly the doctrine of the Trinity, right? So that would have, again, saved a lot of conflicts. Right? He could have done a lot of things. What he says, all authority has been given to me. Why this? Well, authority is a big deal in Jesus' ministry. Over and over again, people are amazed at the kind of authority that Jesus has. When Jesus is talking with the religious leaders, the people are amazed that even though they've spent their entire lives studying the scriptures, and they are the spiritual heavyweights in the society, Jesus speaks with far more authority than they ever do. All right, Authority. Authority over, over diseases. Jesus casts out, well, he, he heals people, and, and, he, and he, he brings people back to life. At the end of his life, he himself resurrects. So he's, he's got authority over illness. He's got authority over death. He's got authority over demons. I was reading recently the story where, where, where Jesus casts the demons out of legion, right? The, the, the legion of demons are in this one man. And if you ever read this, this is like a horror story. I mean, just the setting, kind of get, put it in your mind. Jesus is going to this place where there's a bunch of tombs, and, and, and there's this man, naked man, in the tombs. He's got chains on because he's been trying to be bound, but he breaks the chains. He's got a multitude of, of, of demons, all right? And he's, he's cast off. Jesus lands, walks towards him, and this wild man starts running straight towards Jesus. Now, if you were there with, if you were there with the disciples and you saw this happening, what are you thinking, right? There is this monster running towards this mild-mannered Jesus. What is going to happen? Jesus is going to die, right? What happens is this demoniac, this, this legion comes to Jesus, falls down at his feet, begging for mercy. Authority over demons, Think about even, even the moments before he's arrested in the garden when, or on the Mount of Olives when, when, when the, the people, um, the soldiers come to arrest Jesus. What happens? They, they ask. They're trying to figure out, make sure, because Jesus and his disciples are there together. And they ask, are you Jesus of Nazareth? The soldiers ask to Jesus. And these are battle-hardened soldiers who are trained to stand up in battles, trained to be fierce, to be furious. To have authority of their own. Jesus says, I am. And they all fall down. This is the kind of authority that Jesus has had throughout his ministry. But here he says something different. Here he's saying, even more authority now is given to me. He says this. All authority on heaven and on earth is given to me. Now again, we're bumping up into the mystery of the Trinity here a little bit. As God, Jesus has all authority. He always had. However, within his role in redemption, he chose to to humble himself, to lower himself, to be born a baby, to live a life of suffering, to be tortured, to to, to be humiliated, and to die. Right? This is humility. Humiliation is what Jesus chose. But when he he raises from the dead, when he resurrects from the dead, it's a game-changer. Now, instead of the M.O. being humiliation, now the M.O. is exaltation. And God is pleased to put Jesus at the highest place in honor 
so that you see him as the king he really is. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. And it's fitting because who is Jesus at this point? He is the conquering king. In the crucifixion, he conquered death. He conquered sin. He conquered Satan. And now he sits enthroned. I was going to use an example from The Lord of the Rings, some of my favorite movies. Uh, at the very end, the fellowship, not the fellowship, the, the return of the king, right? Uh, the return of the king, there's the celebration at the end. And, uh, and, and everyone's there to celebrate the victory of Middle-earth as Aragorn has led his people to, to, to defeat the forces of evil. And I was like, that's exactly what this is. This is, this is Jesus enthroned, and he's celebrated. And I thought, you know what? No, it's not exactly true. This is more like movie two, book two, right? The two towers. There is a triumphant battle at the end where Gandalf and Aragorn do destroy the forces of evil at that time. And victory is assured because you see the might of Gandalf. You see the power of Aragorn. But the battle continues. You see, where we are, Jesus has dealt the death blow to Satan's sin and death. And because of his power, because of his authority that has been given to him, we are confident in our victory. And yet, the battle goes on. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Well, you might say, well, what does this have to do with love? I thought this was supposed to be about love. This is about power. I think it's both. I think what we see here is that God has a powerful love for us. The context here, I mean, Jesus is, is, is giving this great commission to his disciples. And he, knows, he, he is getting ready to physically, in his physical body, go up to heaven. He says, but I'm going to be with you in the Holy Spirit. But he knows the world that his disciples are left to. He knows the fallen nature, the brokenness, the sin, the suffering of this present age. Not only that, but he knows the mission that he's given them actually makes it worse. The mission that he's giving them is going to usher them into a life of pain, of persecution, of rejection, of imprisonment. In many cases, of death. What Jesus is doing as he's commissioning them, as he is sending them out to gather the nations because of his love for the nations, he is reminding them of his power and his commitment to them. When Jesus says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, he's not being arrogant. That's not arrogance. It's, it's assurance for the disciples. And then he does say at the end of the Great Commission, he says, and I will be with you always to the very ends of the earth. Jesus is saying, in my power, in my might, in my authority over everything, I am with you. And what happened? We remember what happened, right? The disciples went out, and yes, they were persecuted, but the faith spread. The gospel spread to the ends of the earth. This was a ragtag group of uneducated fishermen, in the most part. And they went out and they changed the world through the gospel. So, what does this have to do with us? I mean, what does it matter? We're talking about outreach, love, power. What does, this all, what does this all matter? Well, what I want to suggest to you is that if we are going to love our neighbors, if we're going to walk into their world, if we're going to do that with love, we have to first meditate on God's powerful love for us because that changes everything. 
When we think about his power, his authority, his control over everything, we're more confident to speak knowing that his Holy Spirit is powerful and his Holy Spirit does and has throughout all eternity, has throughout all history changed lives, brought people into the kingdom. When we know his power, we're more confident that he will protect us. And even when we face suffering, even when we face persecution, we know that there can be an inner peace given to us through the Spirit, where Christ is protecting us. If we want to walk into their world, if we want to, out, to, to do outreach, we have to put the right fuel in the tank, love. God's love for us, but we also need to consider our love for God. The disciples went from cowards to heroes. Cowards abandoning Jesus in, their, in, in, his, in his weakest moment. Those who never, got, who never really understood who he was, they were confused up to the end. Jesus, now who, who are you? People say you're the Messiah, but by and large, they were confused. They were cowards. But the love of God and the power of the Holy Spirit changed them to where they went out proclaiming boldly the message. The powerful love of God changed them. And isn't that what happens typically? Things that are really powerful, they impact us. Things that are really powerful affect us. I don't know about you, but yesterday, we've got a lot of young kids in the family, and uh, it's been rainy and cold, but yesterday it was sunny, and it was warm, so we got outside for a long time. We went to the park, and and we saw lots of other families with young kids at the park, because that's what you do. The sun was out. Now, it was only out, I mean, this is nothing like late spring, summer, right? But it it was still out. We could feel the warmth, and we were wearing short sleeves, and it was awesome. The sun is powerful. And what does it do? It impacts us. You can't not be affected by the sun. If you're outside, you will be affected by the sun somehow. Your body temperature will rise. You'll be warm. You will tan. Or if you have a complexion like mine, you will burn. But you will be impacted. Right? You can't not be impacted. If you are not impacted by the sun, that means you haven't really encountered the sun. Maybe it's a lamp or something else. But if you encounter the sun, you will be impacted. The same is true of God's love for us. If you encounter it, you will be changed. Let's jump over to Matthew 22 now to talk about how God's love changes us. Matthew 22, starting in verse 36. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. God's love changes us. How? It creates a love in us for God. God's love for us grows in us a love for God. This, this impacts us, this changes us to have a deeper affection for God. When you think about what he's done for you, when you meditate on the truths of who Christ is and what he did for us, and the fact that he's a perfect, innocent man who is willing to be, to be tortured, to be humiliated for you, You who don't really bring anything to the table. You who, in and of yourself, you wouldn't even be interested in God. You who have your own secrets, your own sins, your own shame. But Jesus, in his love, died for you. When you meditate on that, when you think about God's power, his power and the way he pursues you in his power, the way he protects you like a shepherd, like a father, like a king, 
when you think about that, it grows an affection in our hearts for God. Matthew 22, this, this great commandment, it mentions these different categories. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. These aren't hard and fast categories. What they're trying to say is that, that we must have a comprehensive love. It's all-inclusive. What this passage is trying to tell to us is there's no, there's, no, there's no category of your life that shouldn't be touched by this. All right? your, your mind, your heart, your behaviors, all of your life, that's the kind of love that God is, is growing in us. That's the kind of love that God is asking for us. Think about, I didn't have time to throw this on the overhead, but, but imagine, if you will, kind of use your, your imagining tools up here and imagine a pie chart, all right? Break that pie chart into six different categories and, and, and maybe you put one category work, one category family, free time, whatever, finance, however you want to, church, <clears throat> devotion life, however you want to do it, right? So you've got different categories for your life, one of which is spiritual, all right, maybe two if you throw in personal, public worship, whatever. That is not a comprehensive love. That's a compartmentalized love. A love that says, all right, I've got my life, and this is my life over here, and, and this, is, this is my love for Jesus, but I've got the rest of this life over here. God says, no, I want to give you something better than that, something, something grander than that. I want to give you a love where you go ahead and do that pie chart, so erase that pie chart in your mind, let's do another one. Still six categories. And throw up whatever you want in there. Work, school, friends, social life, whatever you want to do. And then there is this cross that's laid over all of them. There's not just one category in a comprehensive love for God that's affected. It's every single category is touched. Its impact is influenced by your love for God. It's a comprehensive love. This is what God's powerful love does for us. It creates a comprehensive love for God. Now remember grace, right? Grace says that ultimately we're never going to be perfect in any category, including a comprehensive love. Grace says that the only person throughout all history who actually lived a fully perfect comprehensive love for God was Jesus. And that in salvation, what he does is he gives you his comprehensive love, takes your compartmentalized love and says, I'm going to die for this and you get to live for mine. That's grace. And the Holy Spirit is in your heart, giving you more and more each day a more comprehensive love. I'm not even sure if that's grammatically correct, but... An idea of, it's, you're growing. This, this wholehearted love, it's growing. Even though it's not perfect, it's, it's growing each day. And as it grows, then you start to see outreach efforts become more possible. Think about this. <clears throat> I don't know about you, but when I go to restaurants, I, I enjoy... Um, I'm kind of like schizophrenic about this. I, I, I like trying new things, but it's really important that the things I try are good. Like, I'm not interested in just like serving the whole menu because a lot of stuff is not going to be good. So I want to know, you know, a, a few things that I get to rotate through. So one of the things I do oftentimes, I'll ask the waitress or the waiter, server, I think is the politically correct thing to say these days. I ask the person who is waiting on the table and I say, what, what do you recommend? What do you like? 
You know, you, you got the whole menu here. It's like six pages. Which, what's the best? And I love it when they've got some answers for that. Well, you know, here's, here's five things. If you like meat, here's five things. If, you, if you're vegetarian, here's five things. And I never take those. But, um, you know, different things that they, they make recommendations. But every once in a while, this is the response. Well, you know, I don't really eat here. You, you work here. Yeah, I don't eat here. I mean, this, has happened, this happened to me the last month. I ask, I ask a, a server and, and, you know, what do you, what do you recommend? It's like, well, you know, I've only been here for three months. You've been here three months. You work here every day. You don't eat. I think sometimes this is how we treat the gospel. We know we're supposed to say, right? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Thus says the track that I'm memorized. But are you experiencing it? Like, have you tasted it recently? Or are we like the server who says, well, let me, live, let, let me read the specials to you. Let me read the features. I, I, don't, I can't vouch for them, but, but let me read them to you. I think what God wants of us, and this is what's going to make us effective evangelists, is if we ourselves have tasted of the gospel, we know how good it is. We have tasted Christ and the way he impacts our lives in different areas. The way he's cared for us in our depression. The way he's given us companionship in our loneliness. The way he's, he's giving us victory, however, however imperfect it is, in our areas of sin. The way he's given us hope and purpose for life. When we taste that, then all of a sudden, I want to share that. Have you ever been in a restaurant where you're eating, and what you're eating is so good, you just want to, you just want to give it to the person. You're sitting down with someone, it's a friend, especially family members, right? It's family, you can share germs. You can't share germs with friends. But you can share germs with family members. And so you're eating something, it's, oh, you've got to taste this. And it's, it's gross, but still, you've got to taste this, right? Guys, Christianity, it's really that good. Have we been impacted by the powerful love of God? Have we experienced God's love for us in Christ to the extent that we just have to share it with others? We need the right fuel for outreach, right? God's love for us, we've got to consider that. We've got to consider our love for God, but we also have to consider our love for others. The Great Commission says this, Go therefore, this is the middle part, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. God's love for us grows our love for Him, and it grows our love for others. What kind of love are we to have with others? According to the Great Commission, it needs to be an intentional love, it's a purposeful love. It's a love that says, I love you, I care for you, and I'm going to love you no matter how you respond to the gospel, but I want you to have the gospel. I want you to respond to the gospel. It's a love that is intent on making disciples. Now you might say, well, I don't like that, because that's, that's a hook, right? That's love with a hook. I don't like that. I'm, that you've got an agenda, <clears throat> not interested. I say, you're right, I do have an agenda. But think about it. Do we not always have agendas in our relationships? The question is, is it a good agenda or a bad agenda? If you love someone dearly, purely, then your agenda for them is the best life they can have, right? Your agenda for them is that things would go well for them. Your agenda for them is that they would be happy. We all have agendas. 
The problem is when it's a selfish, manipulative agenda. And I want something for you so that it comes back to me. We always have agendas. We always have purposes. God calls us. If we're going to step into people's worlds, we need to have a purposeful love. We need to have the best agenda. Disciple. What is a disciple? It's a follower. It's a person who does what, in this case, Jesus does. Someone who watches Jesus and emulates him. Someone who loves Christ. Someone who serves Christ. Someone who worships Christ. Someone who conforms his or her life to Christ. That's our agenda. That's our purpose. That's our intent. Is that a good one? Well, guys, if Christianity is true, it is the only ultimate agenda to have for someone you love. If Christianity is true, then we were created to worship God and our hearts will not be satisfied with anything less, no matter how much we try. If Christianity is true, then although we've been created to be with God, our sin has separated us from God. And we are in desperate need. If Christianity is true, then we were created to be dependent upon God, needing Him as a baby needs a father or a mother. But, here's the problem again, our sin has created a barrier. If Christianity is true, then one day we will stand before Christ, stand before God the Father on Judgment Day, and He will demand perfection. He will not demand an answer such as, well, I'm better than Him. Come on, I tried. I did the best I could. He's going to demand perfection. If Christianity is true, then one day you and I will be in that state, and our only hope is that someone would come and be a substitute for us. If Christianity is true, then we understand that Jesus was that substitute for us. Jesus was the one who lived the perfect life, died the sacrificial death, so that we can be with God. If Christianity is true, then we are invited into a new family, a new life, a new purpose. Because if Christianity is true, then making disciples is the best possible agenda we could have for someone else. Do we need to be gentle? Yes. Do we need to be respectful? Yes. Do we need to love them regardless of their response to us? Yes. But we must be purposeful. Got a water bottle here somewhere. Can someone see it? Hey, thank you. I needed you for that. This was an interactive sermon. That was the goal. We need to put the right fuel back in the tank in order to do outreach. In order to step into people's worlds, we need the right kind of motivation. Imagine this. So there's a water bottle here, and um, just kind of work with me on this. Imagine this was a never-ending water bottle. It would just magically reappear anytime I drank from it. Pretty cool. All right, so that's the first thing you need to imagine. The second thing you imagine, imagine that I am in a water bottle factory. All right, millions of water bottles everywhere. All right, how excited am I about this water bottle? Well, I mean, it's cool. No other water bottle in this factory is never ending, right? So that's kind of cool. But at the end of the day, you know what? I don't need it because I've got water bottles everywhere. All right, that's one scenario. Another scenario, imagine... I've got this water bottle and I'm in a desert. And my life 
depends upon my ability to have water. And I've got the one resource, the only resource, that will keep me alive in this desert. How much am I going to love this thing? How much am I going to value this thing? How much am I going to care for it? How much am I going to want to share it with others? Point others to the source of life, the only source of life in the desert. Because we are living in a spiritual desert. Heidelberg Catechism, question one, says, what is your only hope in life and in death? Your only comfort in life and in death? The answer is Jesus Christ. The gospel is that you and I have been given the one, the only source of ultimate salvation, the one, the only way to be brought back to God. Are you drinking regularly from Christ, the living water? Are you regularly partaking, tasting the gospel, tasting the goodness of God? The more we do, the more excited we're going to be to get out there, to share our faith, to share the powerful love of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word to us. Thank you for the promises that you make to us, that you are powerful, that you are loving, that you use your power for your glory and you use your power to protect your people, to care for us. Lord, I pray that we would taste the gospel, we would taste Christ, we would taste the blessings that come from what he has done for us. And I pray that as we taste it, as we see, experience who you are in Christ, we would love you more. Our, our love, our comprehensive love would grow so that we could share that love in a purposeful way with those all around us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Please stand with us as we celebrate the love of God. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave His Son to win. Amen. And His erring child, He reconciled and pardoned from His sin. The ocean filled And were the skies Of parchment made Where every star On earth a quill And every man Ascribed by trade To write the love of God above would drain the old
stretch from sky to sky. Love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure, the saints and angels I want to invite a few members from the care team or a few elders to come up here. If you have something on your heart that you'd like to uh, have us pray with you about, we'd love to do that. God is loving and he is powerful, and we love to lift up your uh, requests. also want to make a note that, as Dean mentioned earlier, we're going to have a, uh, a meet and greet right over here after the service. If you're new to us, we'd love to come and meet you and talk with you. Finally, you might be thinking, well, okay, this is great, but what do I do practically? How, how do I put this into action? Remember, this is just fuel today. We're just talking about motivation. It was low on practice. We've got some great practical tools, though, in terms of how to grow in outreach. One is the life groups that are currently meeting. We're going to be unpacking more about what we're talking about here. So if you're interested in learning more about this, get into a life group.